So I like bicycles. Um, <laughs> that was ridiculous. <laughs> the largest church in Alameda County, and they don't even call us. Uh, so anyway, sorry about uh, that. But the good news is uh, the, the bike race actually is raising money uh, for people with road rage. So uh, if you are suffering today... Uh, you can call 1-800-BIKE-RACES-SUCK, and uh, you can get, like, therapy sessions. How do you really feel? <laughs> all right, we better get our Bibles open. Uh, first of all, you don't have to open to Hebrews. I want to I quote a, a, a verse from Hebrews. It's just the best. Uh, it says, uh, study your leaders. Those who, who spoke to you the word of God. Be imitators of those who through faith and perseverance inherited the promises. Ponder the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. And this summer we've been studying some great Old Testament leaders. Pondering the challenges they faced, the risks they took. Uh, uh, observing their fearlessness. The perseverance. And uh, their faith. So for three weekends, we unpacked Esther and Mordecai's story. If you missed any of those weekends, you can uh, catch up by hitting the link on the Cornerstone app that could be on your phone if it's not already, or you could go onto our website. But today we move on to the book of Nehemiah, uh, chapter one, and I'm reading starting in verse one. In the month of Kislev, on the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Nehemiah writes, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, it's not good. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So it's the winter of the 20th year of the reign of the king Artaxerxes Longomanus. 
Uh, he is the son of King Xerxes uh, from the book of Esther. And it's been 30 years now since Esther's reign. Uh, there's a new king. Nehemiah is his cupbearer, trusted to test the king's uh, food and his wine and to guard his sleeping quarters. In order to assassinate the king, you had to get past Nehemiah and his crew. And he was a trusted cupbearer. The king trusted his cupbearer more than he trusted his own family members. And since Nehemiah had been given this coveted role, there are things we can assume about him. Uh, first of all, that he was willing to risk his life for his king. Think of the most intensely loyal person that you know, um, and you're on the road to understanding Nehemiah. He would have also uh, possessed an uncanny sixth sense, the ability to sniff out a plot, or uh, crush any kind of uh, shenanigans against the king before uh, they got any traction. So the king would have uh, relaxed when he knew that Nehemiah and his team uh, was, uh, was on the job. Nehemiah would have also had impeccable manners. Um, picture Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey. Uh, his, the job required great diplomacy, uh, which is the, the power of well-timed words and actions, uh, and well-chosen. And he would also just have an understanding of all the 127 cultures that were constantly coming through the palace. He would have known all the ambassadors by name and uh, would have been uh, on the job. Uh, it's a lot to ask, but I bet he enjoyed the challenge. And when you think of it, um, some of you actually have roles like this uh, at work. We don't have cupbearers these days, but we definitely have those who protect the leadership of an organization. Uh, and maybe you're one of those people that was uh, selected uh, because you're trusted. Uh, and uh, whether it's the organ where you work or, or where you volunteer, maybe even here at, at Cornerstone, uh, every successful organization has its cupbearers. They're not in charge, but the people who are in charge really appreciate what these people do. So if that's you, I think you'll enjoy getting to know uh, Nehemiah. All right, so if you weren't with us for the study of Esther and Mordecai, uh, you may be wondering how a Persian king ended up with a Jewish cupbearer. And I'm glad to offer a quick review. Uh, as several generations back, Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonian king, and the city was destroyed, but the, the cream of the crop uh, were taken to Babylon to be uh, retrained and put into government service. That is, those who, who had the aptitude and the willingness to cooperate with now, literally, their new masters, their new captors. Um, but there were those who said, um, I, I'd be glad to, to give it a try. And so you might know the story of Daniel and the, the three Hebrew uh, his, his, his uh, probably teenage friends, uh, applying themselves to Babylonian culture and astrology and all the, the pagan history and practices, but still stubbornly refusing to compromise their biblical values. Later, the Bible will call it uh, being in the world, but not of the world. Uh, and at times, they risked their lives for the stands that they took and uh, so Nehemiah grew up hearing stories about Daniel and the boys. And actually, as well as uh, Esther and, and Mordecai, who also took uh, tremendous risks. 
to lay the foundation for the Jewish people in the Persian Empire at this point in history. And it worked. Thanks to Mordecai and Esther, it, was, uh, it had been for a while, while Nehemiah was growing up, illegal. Anti-Semitism was illegal in the Persian Empire because of what Esther and Mordecai uh, had done. And so this created a great work environment for this guy, uh, Nehemiah. And this is a great reminder for all of us as well that the benefits we enjoy today or take for granted were uh, most likely paid for by someone who, uh, through risk and hard work, uh, came, came before us. So this week I'm taking some of our team on a field trip. Uh, I'm taking the, the worship planners and the service uh, planners, along with those that craft our, our social media presence and shape our message. Our first stop will be 4027 Stanford Way, Livermore, California, the house where Brenda and I started a Bible study that later became uh, our church. And after we've spent some time on the curb there with the neighbors wondering what all these people are doing, uh, we'll go across town and go into the Shrine Center, uh, just across the freeway here, where Cornerstone met as a church for just under 12 years starting in 1993. And the purpose of the field trip is to, on location, uh, tell stories to educate the next generation of leaders around here, this creative bunch, uh, that they are building on a foundation that someone else uh, laid. Someone who came before him. And uh, so I'm one of those someones. And uh, when we launched Cornerstone, I can tell you that we started from scratch. Uh, with, with very little. But what we did have were our values and our hopes and dreams of a healthy uh, church. And these values could easily be lost if those who joined us later were not informed. So the stories have to be passed down of uh, events and miracles that uh, developed our faith and, cre- and, and, and actually created our strategies and our approaches. And so it's just even helpful to those who have come since to even know why we do the things the way we do, that there's actually some reasons uh, behind them. So it's a great mix, because the fresh creativity that comes with with those that have joined us uh, recently is very much appreciated, but what the new person needs from from those who have been around for a while is is the the depth of of the story, which is now 25 years old, uh, that, that, that the more the stories, you know, it's not hard for someone to, to hear the foundational values uh, coming through our history. But our history has to be factored in to our, um, to our future. And that's not only true of a church, that's true of any organization, uh, any school, any nonprofit, any company. If you don't tell the story of your company to the people who are now shaping your company, they'll take it in a direction that you never uh, intended. And even if it's a good direction, it's not your direction. And so this is an important leadership uh, 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 point. And so Nehemiah's a a guy that we get the feeling that he had a a real appreciation for, uh, for, for history. As he worked every day in the Winter Palace, he would have been aware that this is where Esther was crowned queen. 
Um, this is where Mordecai took the risks he took at the city gate. This is where nearby where Haman was, was killed. And, um, and then looking back even further, Daniel and, uh, and his guys worked in this palace. And so as he walked through those walls, uh, he'd be a very busy guy, but at time to time, uh, going through those halls, he would have reminded himself, hey, someone else came before me, but now it's my turn to push that same mission forward. All right, so let's get back to our story. Uh, Nehemiah is working in the palace on a day, and he hears Hebrew uh, being spoken in the palace. And so he, he gravitates toward that, and, uh, and uh, he's drawn to these Jewish voices in the hallway. And when he gets close, he sees that it's his cousin. And these guys have just returned from Jerusalem. And so he starts peppering them with questions. And his natural assumption would be that since caravans have been returning to Jerusalem for uh, almost 100 years now, that uh, great progress would have been made and, and, the, and Judea would have been being rebuilt. But today he finds out that is not the case uh, at all. Circumstances in Jerusalem were grim, to say the least. So this is how the story opens, and uh, with a conversation. And this conversation, on an otherwise normal day, changes the trajectory of Nehemiah's life for the rest of his life. All because he's Jewish, and Jerusalem is in dire straits, and a once great nation is now a remnant, and the people living there, including the pioneers that have gone back, are exposed and in danger and defenseless. The walls are down, they say. The walls are down. The gates are burned. Now, living in a, living in a modern society, the, the, the implications of the walls are down and the gates are burned, we don't completely get it. But in an ancient city, uh, the walls were necessary. Uh, picture the word immunity. Um, uh, a wa walls being down and the city is infected with every foreign thing. Walls up, gates in place, and uh, uh, the, the walls of a city provided the defense of the city and also the offense of the city because the enemy had to get close enough for you to throw things at them and shoot things at them. And they're down there and hopefully defenseless. Um, and then in peaceful times, the walls make this proud statement and the banners are flowing and the, the flags and the, 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 the beautiful drawbridges are open. And of course, I'm picturing a medieval city. I don't think... But nevertheless, still, the, uh, the walls made a statement. You know, this is us, and we're not a little village. We're, we're a city. And you could see for miles as you approached the city, the first thing you saw were the beautiful walls of the city. And the walls also provided social order, or the gates did, because the gates were where the elders of the city sat and conferred and met. And all the judges of the city, the decision makers of the city, we're always at the gates. So if the gates are burned, uh, you see the social order start to, to break down and crumble. So when Nehemiah, who enjoyed the protection of a walled city, realized that his own people didn't have that same, um, I, want, I started to say luxury, but necessity, this absolutely broke his heart. And he sat down and cried, he said. I sat down and cried. And this is an interesting statement, too, because Persian culture, uh, you weren't supposed to show emotion like this. And uh, you'll see later even that uh, you're not supposed to show emotion in the presence of the king. Any sad emotion, you're always supposed to be happy, happy in the presence of a Persian uh, king. But Nehemiah, no, 
He's just sad. Everybody knows that. He, he goes into mourning for four months, and he would have continued working, but definitely the signs of, of intense sadness. So this is, a, this is an unusual reaction, uh, and it's, it's extreme uh, for a person who's living a thousand miles from a problem that doesn't really affect them on a practical level uh, one bit. But still, the bad news brought him to his knees. So we stop and we say, well, what's, what's happening with this guy? Why is he having this intense and extended reaction to this, uh, to this news? Well, what, ma- what makes people react like this uh, is that something's already going on inside of them. And uh, uh, something is, has been stirring inside of this man that, that we don't hear about. So this particular new- news pushes that button in him and affects him more intensely than it affects others. Have you ever had an experience that you really had a strong reaction to and it was stronger than the people around you? Hmm? Okay, because like just then you didn't have a response at all, so I was (laughs) just curious. Um, I remember um, going to India and India just assaults your senses in, in, in good ways and in not so good ways. But I remember, I remember being there, and I remember the reactions. I had, I had a lot of reaction going to India. I remember walking through the slum there at Mumbai and uh, touring some of the good things that, that uh, Cornerstone was doing and that we were being drawn into doing, but just the slum itself. I mean, I'd seen poverty in America but I had never seen anything like this. Um, I remember one particular lunch when Brynn and I came out of a restaurant, and we were, near, we were near the slum. We weren't in the slum, but there, we had had a great meal, and we came out, and we were, our, our, our driver was, we were trying to figure out where he was, and, and there was a little girl that approached us begging, and very common in, in India, and she's a beautiful uh, girl. It's, it's hard to tell her, it would be hard to tell her age because of malnourishment. She, she looked like she was about seven, and she's probably like 12. But uh, dirty little face, beautiful eyes. And uh, I just remember this little girl. And we knew not to give her money because there would be an adult just lurking nearby to take it. Um, uh, her handler, her owner, uh, even her parent using her out there to lure people to give money. But uh, we knew if we gave her food, that might work. So... We had extra food, and we were going to give it to the driver, but he was just as fat as I was, so uh, we, 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 we gave it to this girl, and she just wolfed it down. I remember just Brenda sitting down on the curb beside this little girl while she ate, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to get her some more food. I went right back in the restaurant and ordered more food, brought it out, and she ate all that as well. And, uh, but I remember feeling good about her. She's going to sleep that night with a full stomach, but knowing that in a, another day, she's going to be... She's going, to be, uh, she's going to be hungry again, and uh, we were, were leaving. Throughout the time that I was in India, I remember just a, a mixture of anger and sadness at this caste system that keeps the majority, uh, at least half of the population of India, uh, in extreme uh, poverty. Uh, and it made me feel uncomfortable. But that was a necessary thing, because... I don't know if about you, but it's, for me, it's, it's necessary for me to get upset about something uh, in order for me to, to really do anything about it. 
Uh, I, I can hear about the poor and be aware of them, but until you're among the poor, uh, you don't feel it. Uh, and, and, and things just really have to bother me before I will do much uh, about them. So feeling anger and sadness uh, about extreme poverty has pushed me to use my influence uh, to bring help uh, whenever, whenever I can. Actually, even when we pray over our meals in our household, rarely do I pray over a meal, but what the Holy Spirit nudges me to pray for the poor and to pray that we would share uh, with them. So I, that was one time I had an extreme reaction to something. Uh, another time, uh, we visited the refugee camps uh, in uh, bordering Syria, in Lebanon, Jordan, uh, in Iraq, uh, and that brought out, the oh, just, it was hard to sleep at night uh, during that tour of uh, what we were seeing there. We were traveling with Rich Stearns, the, the, uh, the leader of uh, World Vision, and uh, so it opened some doors for us to, to, to get in to see some things and to talk to some people. One afternoon, we toured an elementary school in a refugee camp that actually you had helped uh, pay for. And the classroom was buzzing. Uh, these kids were showing us a dance uh, that they were learning. Uh, and it was a complex dance. And then they tried to teach us the dance. And then they just laughed hilariously as we tried to dance. They're just, they're just falling on the floor. And just acting like kids. And it was awesome. And if, I felt like, well, this is a normal thing for, for these kids. And they don't seem so scarred. Uh, but then the artwork on the wall betrayed them because on one wall, the, the teacher, who's also a therapist in PTSD, said, I want you guys all to give me a painting or a picture or a drawing of what peace looks like, the word peace. So their, their drawings were beautiful and uh, um, just pastoral settings of meadows and, and uh, um, Syrian life. And then, uh, and then she said, okay, now I want you kids to draw me a picture of what war looks like. And on the other wall were the most horrific pictures I've ever seen a child draw, uh, with helicopters dropping bombs on houses and men shooting uh, innocent people, and even uh, people laying on the ground in pools of blood, uh, all drawn by uh, third, fourth, and fifth graders. And I just never get these images out of, out of my mind. Uh, and I don't think I'm supposed to because I, th I think the memories and the shock of that is supposed to motivate someone like me to continue to help traumatize people uh, wherever we can, whether it's a trafficked girl in the Philippines or uh, a veteran on our city streets that's, uh, that's, that's obviously struggling, for us to care about that and, and uh, for us to own, to own that. You know, this past week, uh, many of us have been, uh, had, had intense emotional reactions to something happening much closer to home as our own government um, has been intentionally tearing families apart and uh, putting them in cages at our southern uh, border, uh, punishing children because their parents entered the country illegally. And uh, I was reading a report uh, by a child psychologist who said that at a certain that kids of the certain age that this is being done to will never completely recover from the emotional scars that this has created. And so it makes you angry. It made me angry. Uh, it's an immoral thing for a country like ours. I mean, our, we are a nation of immigrants. So to be treating people 
Latin American families uh, like this. I mean, a, a, a top value in Latin, in Latin American countries is family. So our country is attacking, talk about hurting people to the core, and, and it's intentional to try to deter people from entering our country illegally. But uh, it's horrific and immoral and wrong. Um, and it's not enough for us to be angry and post things, uh, but it's necessary for us to get angry because an emotional response oftentimes is what will, will spur us to action. It's, it's anger that fuels action. Passion ignites a plan. And this is a leadership principle. And Nehemiah is giving it to us here. He's saying, when I found out about this, I just sat down and cried. And I walked around the palace upset for, for four months. He seems very comfortable in the first chapter telling us all about this very unmanly response to what he heard about, making Nehemiah a leader we know we can learn from because he, he tells us this about himself. Uh, Becky taught us that, uh, that leaders care deeply. So I would say, uh, beyond, even beyond that, the people following you need to see that. They need to, they need to hear the story. They need to feel the, the things with you that are upsetting you. They benefit greatly by observing your process as the leader as you are made aware of something, and then for them to see the process and for you to let them into the process of how you go from awareness to solutions. And for the team to go with you through that process as a plan is forged by passion. Uh, I would say leaders let the problem hurt them. I think we have to feel it before we will ever change it. The, the greatest things we'll ever accomplish will start with strong feelings. And that's exactly what's happening to Nehemiah here. Uh, he has a great life, but uh, his great life is now being saturated with, uh, with, with sadness regarding someone else's suffering. And then as Nehemiah is, mourns, he is motivated to move because he allows his, his heart to lead him for a while. And uh, we'll see later that during this time is when his plans are reset and his resources are reallocated. Re resources that he thought were going to go for something else are now going to go towards fixing this problem. Let me give you a personal example of how your heart can change a decision that your head had already made. Last year, year before, I, I, I can't remember, but... In the not-too-distant past, I was having lunch with a couple in our, uh, our congregation that had given a very generous check uh, to our church, and I, I was having lunch with them to say thank you and to kind of talk through the, the great impact that this one contribution was going to make for some much-needed improvements on, actually, the campus that they, they attend. But the longer we talked, it became apparent that she especially, her heart was breaking for trafficked women. And I'd recently been briefed on, on Bay Area human trafficking, and my heart had broken as well in this regard. I was angry about what I heard uh, goes on right here in the Bay Area, and I had vowed to increase our support to our ministry partner that uh, rescues and re rehabilitates trafficked women and their children. So that day at lunch, the Holy Spirit prompted me to reallocate those funds which had already been given to Cornerstone. And I asked them, would they prefer that these funds not go to improve the campus 
But if, if, would they prefer that we just give all these funds to this other organization? And of course, with tears, they said, they said yes. Uh, and uh, because our initial anger about human trafficking and our rea- reaction to that superseded our previous decision. That's our heart leading our head in a very healthy way. All right, so how about you? Has, has something big been bothering you lately? Or are you just walking through life just happy and you're not as angry as 90% of America is? Has, has anything bugged you lately? Well, let me, let me suggest that maybe God could use that emotion as fuel to actually get you moving to craft a plan or to join a plan that is uh, affecting change. And this is a beautiful thought for many of us because a lot of us will say or think somebody needs to do something about this. But possibly your anger is, uh, if it's handled correctly, uh, or your upset feeling could be the birth pangs of a personal mission. And you begin to realize that you're the somebody that you were talking about. We talk around here about, you know, how we, we, we want to help everyone take their next step with Jesus. But while you're helping other people take their next step with Jesus, maybe you're being called to your next step with Jesus. And maybe your next step with Jesus is a big one. It might even be a career um, changer. What if the next step you took with Jesus was a, was a really big one, one like Nehemiah is about to take? I mean, how many world-changing organizations have started with one person realizing the magnitude of a problem and then saying, that breaks my heart. I'm going to do something about that. One of my, one of my heroes in the nonprofit world is a, a guy named Bob Pierce. And Bob is the founder of World Vision, and he's the founder of Samaritan's Purse. Um, and uh, before he passed, he founded two fantastic um, organizations. And he was a man who was crazy enough to pray, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. What a beautiful prayer. So you can see where I'm going with this. I'm hoping that as we unpack Nehemiah's broken heart and the accomplishments that came after that, I'm hoping that more of us will be willing to have our hearts broken and, uh, and, and, and to be called towards solving the things that we feel upset about. Um, uh, it's more than posting on Facebook, which doesn't solve a thing. And if that's how you choose to express yourself, great. But when you get done with that post and you said, okay, send, I want to remind you, you didn't fix anything. And you didn't change anyone's mind. You just emoted, which is fine. Sometimes we need to do that. But I think we need to be a people who not only realize that, but take it further than that and go towards solutions. Now, having said that, we can't do that until we do what Nehemiah did. And Nehemiah actually uh, didn't get busy for four months. He, he found out about this thing, and then we're going to go to chapter two, and we're going to realize he didn't do anything for four months except this one thing. He prayed. And he fasted. He, he actually got unbusy. As unbusy as he could be. 
in order to focus, in order to pray, in order to seek God's favor, in order to ask God for help, in order to figure out what in the world am I going to do? I'm a thousand miles from this problem. I'm a busy guy. Uh, but after he, he got on his knees, he knew what he was supposed to do. And part of that prayer, uh, that time, involved fasting, skipping meals as he prayed. And this is so impressive to me because this is a man who had access to the best food for a 1,000 miles. He's the king's cupbearer. Um, he's supposed to taste the food, the king's food. And so, uh, but he didn't touch the food. He fasted. And I have trouble relating to that because I love food. I never met a meal I couldn't have a short-term relationship with. I talk to my food. If you knew me back in 2001, um, you know that I, I got pretty sick and had a long recovery. And the, one of the ways they, they, they knew that I was really sick was no matter what I ate, I was losing weight at a, such a rapid um, pace. Uh, I, I dropped 50 pounds in less than six weeks. And um, everybody was putting food in my face. Eat. Even the doctors, Steve, you got to eat all the time. And I said, okay, if you want me to. And then as I recovered, and you know, they, they, they got my uh, disease into remission and, 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 and I recovered, uh, I, kept, I kept on with my doctor's instructions and I just kept eating. And uh, so I started putting pounds back on to the point where I met with a doctor and she said, okay, all your tests have come back. You're looking good, except your cholesterol blood pressure, she said, uh, hey, you, you could probably drop a few pounds, Steve, and not miss them. Um, and I think that's terrible. Doctors are the only people that we pay to insult us like that. <laughs> so she encouraged me to start reading the serving sizes on the packaging. I didn't know those were on there. Uh, it was just a bunch of blah, blah, blah on the back, you know. So I'm, later that evening, I'm watching TV, and I've got a, I'm eating a, a bag of vegetables while I watch TV, and a large bag, actually, um, Maui onion potato chips. <laughs> Eat your vegetables. And uh, I looked on the bag for the serving size. <laughs> you, know how many, you know what the serving size of one serving of Maui onion potato chips is? 13 medium-sized chips. I can eat that many chips during the commercial break. Uh, I thought a serving size would be, you know, half the bag. But uh, so dieting is difficult for me, and fasting is darn near uh, impossible, which impresses me about Nehemiah. Uh, plus, he already told us he was depressed. How many of us eat when we're depressed? Yeah. That's why they call it comfort food. It's in the Bible. <laughs> but Nehemiah fasted. Uh, he's not going to let his depression control him like that. And you know, it's interesting. He comes from a long line. Uh, Esther and Mordecai fasted. Remember? Daniel and the boys fasted. There's even a famous diet that's named after Daniel. It's called the Daniel Fast. They, they, they fasted. They denied themselves food. And to deny yourself food 
as you pray is different than going on a diet. Denying yourself food as you pray. Uh, as Nehemiah fasted as he prayed, he brought his physical cravings in submission to his spiritual cravings. When you fast, you're saying to God, I'm hungry, but I'm more hungry for this other thing. And so you, you seek it like you seek uh, f- food. You focus your appetites. You tell yourself no, which is one of the healthiest things a person can tell themselves. And then when he does that, he opens, he opens up the, the, the way to, for he can consecrate his feelings and his, his sorrows, and then he can start to, to, to get focus. And, and, and with each hunger pain, he, he would have poured out his heart to God, which would have aligned him to God's plan, and God's plan included him. And so I would say by fasting and praying, he already began to do the work of repairing the walls of Jerusalem, and he's a thousand miles away. And remember, Nehemiah is not the likely person to go to uh, Jerusalem and repair those walls. He's not a builder. He's a cup bearer. But God can easier use a praying cup bearer to build a wall than a non-praying wall builder. And, and even as you look at what he prayed, let's just take a quick glance at, at what he prayed there. Um, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his command. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I mean, he doesn't approach God with, God, I'm so upset about this. He, 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 he says, Lord, you're awesome. And, and please listen to what I want to pray. And I'm not praying for myself. I'm praying for this other group. And, and, and I confess, he said, The sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But then if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people that are the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now, when we pray like that, is that because God forgot what he said? No, he's, he's aligning himself with the promises of God. And he said, I read that if we rebel, you'll punish us. But if we return to you, you'll, you'll return us to, and in his case, you'll return us to, to, to Jerusalem. They're your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of the king. So I think it would be good for us as we open this book of Nehemiah, um, for those of us that have been having, just feeling a lot of feelings lately, I think it would be wise for us to to fast and to pray in order to focus those feelings. if you've, if you've never read Nehemiah's story, you're going to be thrilled when you discover how much this guy accomplished as he changed careers. But he wouldn't have done it uh, without what he did first. And so I would encourage you to imitate him this, th- this week. How many of you would be willing to spend a little bit more time in prayer this week 
regarding the things that have been upsetting you. To not just be upset, but to take the upset to the Lord. All right, how many of you would take it further and you would be willing to fast as you prayed about these things? See, that's, now that's, you have access to food, but you're gonna deny yourself food as you pray. And uh, I'll be doing this. I picked Tuesday for some reason. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and so if you fast on Tuesday, pray for me. And you could, you could just fast for one day, one 24-hour day, and then the next morning, breakfast, break the fast, um, and then you could say, that was great, I'm going to do it again, and so then the following day, you could do it again, and you could be on again, off again, uh, or you could, you could pick a number of days, two days, three days, a week, however, however much you want to, uh, to try. I guarantee you, if you do this once, it's like exercise, you'll say, why don't I do this more often? And not only does your body feel better, your spirit feels better. You feel like a spiritual being instead of just a consumer. And that's why I think it's so great for those of us in the Western world that are so wealthy to fast because, you know, fasting uh, aligns your body to your soul. And, uh, and you do pray more when you're fasting because you skip one meal and it's not that big of a deal after that, you've skipped that second meal, it starts to affect your blood sugar and it starts to affect some things and you're like, you know, um, I'm hungry. And then you say, am I, gonna, am I gonna follow through with this or am I gonna cheat? And you go, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cheat. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And then as you do it, you're, you're praying. Lord, I'm hungry for you. I'm hungry for you. I'm not gonna let my cravings control me. Um, those of you that have... You have to keep your blood sugar at a certain level. Just drink some juice or something that, uh, that, that'll keep you healthy during a fast. But, uh, so I want to encourage you to do it. All right, so I, I, I've given you some time to think about it. How many of you are going to fast one day this week as you pray? Come on. I mean, don't, I'm not trying to get you to raise your hand. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get you not to raise your hand if you're not really going to do it. How many of you are going to fast? Hold your hand up. Oh, this is great. I think that'll be good. And uh, how many of you that are going to fast, this is the first time you've ever done this? Oh, man, some, this is awesome. All right. Well, let's pray. Let's pray that God gives us the strength and the discipline to do this. And then read the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we won't blast through it, but we will only take seven weeks to go through 13 chapters. So you'll want to stay uh, ahead of us on this. Father, we come to you now, and with this challenge... We pray that you would uh, make us faithful to the promise we just made. And as we pray um, this week, those of us that are fasting, we pray that, uh, we're not saying that you, you would make it easy on us, but you would, you would give us the discipline to do what we said we we're going to do. And then as we experience hung hunger pains, as that 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever progresses, we will come to you with our cravings. And Lord, some of us are craving a better Bay Area. Some of us are craving a better nation. Some of us are craving a better world. And we ask that you then, in, in, in our prayers over the next few months, that you would show us our place in that. That our role is not to just be upset about things, but to use that anger to fuel action. God-inspired action, God-led action. 
as we repair the torn fabric of our culture. So we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord.